Rick Soup has brought with him two elders, Beverly, whom you heard, and Art. Um, so he was thinking that perhaps there would be some questions which he would uh, defer to his elders for, for a, a more thorough answer. Um, I'm going to invite Rick up here again, and um, both Art and Beverly are available. Uh, they may come up and, and uh, you know, give the more uh, profound answer to a question that, that Rick feels that uh, deserves their, their consideration. So, Rick, if you want to come back up. <coughs> and uh, I, I just want to mention that, I mean, this is, I think we've just touched the surface of, of what it means and we're also looking at uh, you know something that has a, a long historical relationship. We can't contain it uh, in a half-hour presentation for sure. But but perhaps uh, you know some thoughtful questions will will help us all out. And excuse me, the microphone there is the one that you want to go and and uh, introduce yourself and ask your question. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming today, Rick. Yeah. Uh, my question would be <coughs> concerning the Correctional Center not having any <coughs> women. Not that uh, you should have any women, but I know there are some women in the Lafayette Correctional Center. It would be <coughs> probably much better to have room for Aboriginal women in uh, Kainai. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that, please? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, the, the rates are rising for female Aboriginal offenders, and um, this is something that we did look at. Uh, I, I was involved in, in the research uh, component to uh, prior to Kainai Corrections uh, going online. We did have four beds for females and 20 beds for males. Um, <clears throat> but um, overall, um, the tribe decided to go just with the, the male offenders at the time. Um, I believe staffing issues were a concern. Um, the, at that time, um, we weren't getting a lot of funding for um, for a, for a co-ed um, um, workforce as, as far as uh, um, male and, and female uh, <coughs> corrections officers. So um, I know that played a role in the decision, and um, we did ask or brought that up. Uh, one of our previous meetings, I think in March or, or April, when we met with Solicitor General's department, and uh, I know the response we got back at that time was that uh, they didn't really want to mix male and female offenders. Um, but I think that still might be something that we would look at uh, at some point. But I think there's other options available uh, to... Uh, to also deal with that. Um, one of the things um, we'd like to explore is um, there are receiving centers um, that are out there. 
in Calgary and Edmonton, and we're told to look at these things because um, <clears throat> there's more people. They say they're serving sentences in their homes now uh, that are classified as minimum, but they still have to do community service work and such. You have to report to to uh, a, a receiving center, and um, they they arrange for that community service work. So this might be something that we could look at uh, down the road. Um, just talking to someone this morning about um, there's also a women's shelter that's on the reserve that we might be able to um, uh, look at as if there is uh, you know need for. Um, uh, a place for them to stay and still do their work. That's I can't say that's that's something that's definite going to happen. But like I said, I think we, we need to look at all options. Um, this might be something that uh, we could look at uh, down the road. Um, my name is Frances Schultz. I have a question about comments that you that you made about the historical background of no jobs available on the reserve. And you talked about 1962 when the right to farm the land was taken away. And, and, and could you expand on that further? Who made the decision, what it was based on, um, apart from the fact that it doesn't make sense? <laughs> um, the research that I've been privy to uh, during that uh, era I have a very good friend that did his uh, his thesis on this. Well, apparently, um, during the Second World War, the Blood Tribe was one of the biggest donators to the war cause. And um, we were really succeeding in our farming. And, um, and as I said, whenever we start succeeding in something, the government comes and takes it away from us. And apparently they said we were in a deficit. And they said, you're going to have to give up your farming for four years. And um, 40 years later, two-thirds of all the money that's made on the Blood Tribe farmlands goes off reserve. And only one-third stays on the reserve. So we've been in a deficit for 40 years. Also, the, the uh, government hasn't lived up to his their treaties. I was telling this young lady, have you ever read your treaties? And she said, no. I said, well, those treaties are yours, too. They're not mine alone. They're not for the Native people alone because we made agreements with your people. And one of those agreements was that we would be given farm implements to farm and we would be given livestock. So that hasn't happened either. So when I was a young girl... I would tell my mother, did my dad go on a trip? And she said, no, he's out working. All my brothers would go with my dad, and I'd be allowed to sleep in because I was young. But I would, I would never see my dad the whole week. 
And that was because he went out to work. One of my dad's favorite saying is, I'm no 8 o'clock man. I'm out on my tractor at 6. So that's the kind of community we lived in before 1962. We were all self-sufficient. We farmed. Uh, We had places to take our wheat to be made into flour. And... um, You know, we had a big garden at our house. My mom used to have like 200 chickens and turkeys that she sold. And all the people on the reserve pretty well lived like that. And then in 1962, when the government came in and said, well, uh, you have to let this white guy over here farm, then our whole... Our whole nation, you know, they didn't, the work that they did wasn't there. So now we rely on government jobs. Well, the Hutterites and the uh, uh, white farmers, we've made millionaires out of a lot of those farmers. And instead of the government building on this success, and we keep seeing it over and over again, like with the uh, Kainai corrections, instead of building on the success, they take it away from us, and that's what happened with our farming in the sixties. And what about what about Kainai Industries? Well, Kainai Industries again. Yeah. You know, we were doing really good, and we were starting to, and then they said, "Well, there's no more funding for that because you know, you need a lot of money for your original buying of all the lumber and stuff. And so they lost out on that, too. Thank you. You're welcome. (coughs) Is the question for Rick? It's for Mr. Soup, yeah. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Soup. My name is Moira Watson, and I want to thank you for your presentation. I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit, excuse me, about the number of Native workers or or corrections workers in the Lethbridge Correctional Facility versus the Kainai Correction Facility, obviously, is on on reserve, and how that impacts um, inmates here in Lethbridge when they don't necessarily identify with the corrections workers and the corrections officers? Does that make a difference? The number of Native uh, workers in, in Lethbridge? Yeah. Yeah, and how that impacts. Okay. Thank you. Um, Well, I used to work at uh, Lethbridge Correctional Center. I was a a caseworker there at uh, one point in my career. Um, There weren't very many of us uh, uh, Aboriginal people there at the time, and I don't believe there are that many now. I think um, one of my staff says there's about three uh, I think their staff, they, they, they had another uh, statistic uh, that they sent us, and uh, it's not on our PowerPoint, but I believe their full-time staff was around 167 or something like that, somewhere in that range. So uh, I th- the stats that showed uh, the percentage of Aboriginal offenders, you know, I think it's over a third or so out of Lethbridge are, are Aboriginal. So that's, you know, quite uh, disproportionate there. But when I was in Lethbridge at the, at the center, um, 
I was the only caseworker at the time, and <clears throat> all these guys, um, you know, they eventually get out. Uh, the provincial time is two years, less a day, so um, part of the thing is, to, you know, to look at their release planning. And I noticed um, when we'd be sitting at the uh, release planning table presenting our case cases for release um, to the higher-ups at that time, uh, <clears throat> people that got out would, would have jobs, and um, they were the ones that got out, you know, pretty pretty quickly because they had something to, to fall back on. And because of the high unemployment rate amongst the Aboriginal people, um, <clears throat> they, they didn't get out as, as quickly. Uh, another thing that I noticed was um, a lot of the Aboriginal offenders would put uh, as their support persons, because um, we have to do these things, or there's things called community investigation reports that the probation officers do. So when we start preparing the, um, the file for release, the probation officer would have to go out in the community and um, check on the support that this person put down. And a lot of times they would put where they had come from, where there might have been alcohol abuse or substance abuse going on. And part of the thing is that the police also have a, a say in this. So the police would usually deny that and, you know, could understand for good reason. I, I tell these guys, well, there, every family has support systems. Uh, we come from extended families, our structures, like um, um, Beverly mentioned a little bit about uh, the clan systems that we have. There's usually somebody in each family that is, that is um, a support for that for that overall uh, clan structure. And I told these guys, those are the ones you should be putting on your application because... Um, those are ones that are going to watch out for you and, and try and help you uh, during your your pre-release so that you don't get in trouble and don't end up going back into the system. But uh, as far as uh, what's happening now with the, the center and, and our, um, our center, uh, I think... So we have... Our working relationship in the past has been the guys that come out to our programs, um, we want them to participate. And if they don't participate, they pretty well know they're going back to the main center. So that kind of relationship, I think, is, 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 is good in a sense that um, uh, the guys coming out realize that they, they have to attend a lot of these programs that are there. And these things, uh, you know, they're busy from when they get up to when they go to bed. Uh, they're usually involved in work crews during the day, uh, working for different agencies or out in the community. Um, and then in the evenings, they have uh, programs with the elders. Um, one week out of uh, the month, uh, we have a substance abuse program that runs all week. And... Um, all the different agencies that are social agencies on the reserve, they come in and, um, you know, do their presentations. So that's been working good, but I think part of the problem is uh, we don't have anybody that's really involved in classifying these guys from medium to minimum. We know um, 
a lot of them from working with them in the past that uh, they should be classified minimum, but um, you know, through the the system that's in place, through the policies, uh, doesn't doesn't end up working that way. So this is something that we'd want to look at as as part of these next upcoming um, three months at, uh, or three or four months that we have, and um, the relationship I think is overall, you know, it's. Um, it's been positive over the last years, but there's a lot of areas for improvement. Like I said, there's good people that work in the system. Uh, I've had a lot of good experiences working with people. But uh, just the system itself um, really needs to be looked at because uh, there's so many offenders out there, uh, and they're saying that uh, they, they can't make use of our, our programs. It, to us, it doesn't make sense. Uh, just... Hi, Rick. Um, I'm going to make some comments, so hopefully it'll work out to a question. I wanted to congratulate you because um, I think when we first started to work together, it was really looking pretty gloomy about having any kind of a, a reprieve on the, the center that clearly does good work. Um, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to mention and I'd like to leave with you to think is... Um, I'm up in Edmonton, and I'm helping do these kinds of things. I work with Greg. We talk to the ministers. We get Frank to come and talk to you. But I don't have any Native colleagues. And I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm talking about we don't have any Native colleagues sitting in the House. So I'd like to leave that with you and maybe make a comment on that. The last uh, Native that we had to represent um, Native thinking was Mike Cardinal, and that's been, what, two elections ago. So I think it's very important that Native voices be at the municipal level, the provincial level, and certainly at the federal level. Before you leave, could you identify yourself for the audio archive? I'm sorry, Bridget Pasteur. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, well, my background is political science, too. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when I went to university, so I understand what you're talking about there. Um, I think if we can can find ways uh, to have representation um, in the house, um, I know when we uh, we did our action plan, that was one of the areas that we looked at. It was approaching MLAs, and um, see, we're we're used to on, on the reserve dealing with Indian affairs federally. So uh, working with MLAs, um, uh, it it was kind of new to us, but, um, you know, it really worked out well because, you know, getting the ear uh, and and having it um, brought out in the House, in the legislature, and then uh, I think put pressure on on the department uh, to revisit this. And I think we do have a, a good relationship uh, or, or developing one with uh, the Solicitor General, uh, Mr. Oberly. Um, I think he's waiting to see what we can come up with, uh, what, what new ideas. And um, we are working on things. Um, we are looking at possibly um, getting a consultant, but that's only one of the options. But we do have a lot of a brain trust on the reserve that, you know, we... We have a lot of people with experience in this field that uh, I think will 
we'll be uh, um, drawing them out and uh, you know asking them to help us. But we also have a lot of um, staff who have um, quite a few years in the system, working in the system. So um, I'm, I'm sure we'll come up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yes, that would be the you know the uh, the best way to go is to have somebody uh, representing us. Um, so on the reserve, um, uh, I was told by one of the MLAs that they they might be um, they're looking at uh, having the reserve um, possibly go. Not under McLeod, but under I don't know Carson Tabor, I believe, or something. So that's something that's uh, a lot of our people probably don't even know about. Uh, was ex- just explained it in one of our meetings, but uh, it's it's a matter of um, because I think we're the only entity of the tribe, and I, I believe there's about 29 entities or departments. Of the tribe, and, and some of them were listed up here uh, that uh, are provincially funded or have a relationship with the province. The other ones are on, under the federal um, federal relationship. So it's, I think, a lot of our people don't, don't see um, uh, a lot of involvement with the province. Uh, I think it, it, you know, we're like I said, one of the few entities that uh, do have involvement. But it, it is really worthwhile um, to, um, you know, push ahead for those kind of things because uh, more and more, like, we're, we're part of the globalization that's happening with everybody. Um, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I try to refer to in my uh, um, talk that, um, you know, it's not an issue that just involves us. It's, it's everybody. Um, that uh, needs to be working together to resolve these issues, and uh, I think uh, it'd be great, it'd be awesome to have uh, somebody, you know, from from our reserve, um, you know, representing uh, Aboriginal people or, or the district. But you know, that might be something that, uh, looking at the uh, jurisdictions, um, you know, should be looked at too. My name is Frank Toss. I'm in a bit of a quandary now. Was it the federal jurisdiction took away from the tribe's land work, or is it the provincial? Uh, I drive past Brockett many times. I see the beautiful crops and all the new equipment there. Uh, are they not native uh, first First Nation equipment? You're still not allowed to work your land and tra- train your children farming? Beverly, Beverly, could you please come up to the mic for the audio archive? Thank you. Um, I'm, a, I'm also a film maker. And one of the films that I was going to make, um, a documentary about this issue, uh, it was called Silent Implements. And I was just going to go to all the different families. Like, there were so many families on our reserve 
that were so angry that our gov- our um, our farming was taken away from us. They just left their implements where where uh, they stopped them. And so I was going to document all these implements. How come they never sold them? Why? All those fancy machinery you see out on the reserve all belong to non-native farmers. We do have blood blood tribe farms near um, uh, near uh, uh, St. Mary's Dam. We have a big area there that is we we know it blood tribe farms and uh, uh two years ago or three years ago we bought a great big tractor um to run that farm uh but before that all the different people had their own farms and then we had uh farming um communes like farm 1 farm 2 farm 3 farm 4 and and in each area, there was farm implements for that area. And um, uh, I have pictures of my father working the land. My father worked for the ID, Indian Department, for 13 years, breaking the land on the reserve. So it was something that he passed on to us, that it was um, a horrible thing to have done to us to um, to not be able to farm our own land. And to this day, the last person that I saw go and make an application to farm on the land was turned down. So we have time for one more question. Thanks. Um, hi, my name's uh, Crystal Frank. I'm a grad student at the university. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, to my understanding, one of the problems the government has with the center's underutilization and uh, one way, of course, to increase utilization is to bring women in. And you mentioned one of the problems with bringing women in is the lack of trained staff. I was wondering, as part of your strategic plan for viability of the center, if it's ever been discussed about trying to encourage more women to go to programs such as the criminal justice program at the uh, college, for example, extra bursaries, scholarships, um, something to encourage enrollment and success in those programs so that they can then be brought back into your community to work at the center. And even maybe males too, um, since you were mentioning, I think three, what is it, less than 3%, our Aboriginal at the Lethbridge Centre? Um, I've worked at a, a women's prison called um, uh, Okima Ochi Healing Centre in Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. And um, do we dare raise the R word? Um, I'm going to have to. Because of racism, um, the warden was a non-native person, and um, I was just explaining to him, uh, after what happened at Kingston, Ontario, Ontario, some of you know the history of that. They had a floor called the res, and what were what was done to those people. Because of that... Uh, the federal government did this uh, thing called making choices. They had a big investigation, and from it came making choices, a beautiful document. 
And uh, but this warden didn't want to fulfill, do the work according to that documents. You can look it up on the internet. It's called making choices. And uh, as a result of my experience with this warden, um, I was talking to my chief last week. So the regional commissioner is coming out to uh, sit with my chief. And they're talking about a female prison. So that much I do know. I don't know. She was supposed to come out on the uh, 20s today. Oh, the other day, 26th. So I haven't talked to my chief to see what what happened. Uh, but I will talk to him. So they, they are talking about uh, a women's prison. And again, a lot of our students are involved in um, uh, criminal justice. And um, um, one of the young ladies that uh, went on to be an RCMP officer, I sat with her last summer and I told her, why did you quit? Keep going, you know, you're almost retired. And she told me, Beverly... I just couldn't fight the racism no more. And that's why after 22 years of service, she pulled out. And um, and unfortunately, it happens. And we try to give more education to non-natives to understand our situation and why it's important for us to give our own history and 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 to share that so that they're grounded in themselves and once you're grounded in yourself you can go out and do anything you want oh yeah i, I totally i totally agree but i was just wondering like when you're talking with the um, government for example to get the women's prison in or even uh, ensure the viability of the existing one if it is worked in i've um, been involved with uh, some training initiatives on the blood reserve uh, in particular with the band farms, so um, a training to work program. So training, I think it was about a dozen uh, young men to come in and do farming and then go on to work for the band farms. And I've seen the success with that. And I just think that maybe encouraging some of these young women, maybe the government would be open to helping with funds to help bring them training to bring them back. I think Rick has a comment he wants to make on this question. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly mention that um, I sit on the, uh, there's an advisory board at uh, Lethbridge Community College, uh, the criminal justice program. Um, we meet usually about a couple times a year. And um, there's instructors there that I've worked with uh, in the past. Some have worked at the correctional center, some at uh, the probation services in Lethbridge. Um there are females, that uh, Aboriginal female uh, students there, and we've hired a, a couple ourselves uh, on the probation services side. Uh, two, we've got two female probation officers that uh, have graduated from that program, and I notice there are more and more uh, female um, applicants in a lot of the job competitions that we have uh, you know, coming out, and so I don't know if that helps answer a bit of your question. But uh, you know, there, there are a lot of female um, people f interested in uh, 
in this field, and uh, we've hired you know a number of them. Okay, I'm going to have to close now, but in closing, I want to thank Rick and Beverly and Art for coming out, and all of the other people who came out from from the uh, Kainai. Uh, two weeks, and uh, the the president can you uh, remind me to tell you all that. On June 10th will be the AGM. That's two weeks from today. But I just want to, in, in closing, also, uh, you know, now that you've found SACPA, um, any of the Nitsutapi who maybe have an issue they would like SACPA to bring up, you know, let us know, and, and uh, we, can, we would be happy to, to uh, partner with you on, on different issues and bring them to a sharing society. Thank you. Okay, thank you.